Hey, it's Alana, and here's another episode of Black and Yellow coming at ya. What's good, Black and Yellow Nation? Happy November. Am I the only one who's tripping on just how quickly 2021 has gone by? I feel like it was just maybe like last week or last month I was preparing to get my final dose of my vaccine and and readying myself to venture back out into the brave new world. And now it's like we're a couple months out from Thanksgiving. Christmas will be here before you know it. And then 2022. My goodness, this is crazy how fast this year has flown by. If you're a new listener, warm welcome to you. Digital hug. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm glad to be in your ears today. And if you're a return listener, thank you for coming back for another episode. I think you're going to like this one. I'm really excited about today's episode. So I wanted to talk about a trend that we saw a lot during the pandemic. It was a trend that has now only picked up more steam as the world has reopened and people are being very intentional about how they want to live and how much they want to live with. But it's a trend that's never felt totally inclusive to Black people. And that trend that I am talking about is minimalism. I'm sure you have seen the minimalist design aesthetic images of sparsely decorated rooms in muted colors, suggesting to the viewer of the photo that the person or people who live at the establishment or who live in said room in the house are not uh, plagued by clutter, but instead are only living with exactly what they need and nothing more. It feels very. Uh, This is a, a lifestyle that everyone should aspire to kind of vibes. Or maybe you've seen some minimalist imagery in photography where images tend to be flatter versus more textured and patterned. The colors definitely are monochromatic at best with maximized negative space and limited graphic elements or any sort of interesting visual additions. Or... Maybe you're familiar with the minimalist lifestyle that involves living with fewer resources and it puts an emphasis on elimination versus accumulation and promotes a give everything a place mantra. Minimalism seems to be everywhere these days. And I get it with good reason. During lockdown, we were forced to live with our things, things we loved, things we hated, things we meant to get fixed or meant to get clean, but just never got around to it, or things that we were dying to get rid of the minute a donation center was safe to go to. It all makes sense. We got sick of our stuff and many of us wanted some sort of a cure and here comes minimalism flying in like Wonder Woman to save the day. To be totally clear, minimalism is a trend that never fully goes away. It sort of comes around every few years to say, what's up? And to remind you that living with less can still be lit. I mean, who can forget the hold that Marie Kondo had on us in 2017? Or the fascination that the world had with Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, a.k.a. The Minimalists, when they purchased their book and released their Netflix documentary all about minimalism. Minimalism seems to be having a, a big moment right now. I know some of you listening might also say, wait, I thought maximalism is having a moment. It's They seem to be both having moments in and of themselves. Uh, However, I've thought a lot about minimalism, and there's always one question that has never left me. And that question with regards to minimalism is, is it for Black people? Hear me out. What I mean by that is this. In mainstream depictions of minimalism, Black people are seldom depicted, nor are the bright, colorful, joy-drenched fabrics and textiles and tapestries and objects and wall adornments and cultural items that I'm used to seeing in a lot of Black households. Whether it's family or family friends, I just feel like a Black household tends to be bright and full of interesting pattern and texture and visual elements that I 
really don't see in any sort of mainstream minimalism depictions. Generally speaking, media representation of minimalism is whitewashed, both literally and figuratively, and leaving very little space for blackness or black aesthetics. And on a bit of a different note, black people have always had a bit of a different relationship with our things because historically we have been forced to live with less. We have been denied access to certain shopping centers, certain stores, places we could go in the country, places we could travel after a certain hour. We've encountered a lot more restriction than white people. So our hold and our appreciation for our objects just feels like it's different than your modern day mainstream Caucasian minimalist. No shade to the minimalists because that was a great documentary. It was very inspiring, but I just didn't feel like I could see me in it. And when I say it, I mean the minimal, the minimalist lifestyle, the minimalist aesthetic. So this question has been pinging around in my mind for a while now, which is why I am super stoked to bring you today's conversation with the Afro-minimalist, Christine Platt. She has a new book out, The Minimalist's Guide to Living with Less, and we are going to talk all about why minimalism is for Black people how we can make it our own, and so much more. This conversation is so great. You're not going to want to miss it. The book is a really beautiful and cathartic read, which I will link to in today's show notes. Y'all don't want to miss this conversation. But first, let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we? So if you are a new listener, this is the part of the show, I like to call it my small business portion of the show, where I want to help you diversify your dollars. I want to help you shop black. I want to shop you help you shop Asian. I want to help you shop local. I want to help you shop in a way that allows you to engage in economic protest every single day. I get that the BLM protests of last year are now over, but you can always engage in a form of protest every day. And that form of protest is economic protest. Where you choose to spend your dollars matters. And this segment is geared to help you uh, diversify your shopping options. So I like to spotlight one black owned business and one Asian owned business that I really like that I think that you should have in your shopping arsenal, you know, for any of your holiday gifting or self care needs. So with that, I'm going to uh, first spotlight Crowns and Hops. It is our Black-owned business. Um, I always joke with my friends that even though I don't like beer, I would support a Black-owned brewery simply because I love when Black people create businesses in traditionally white spaces. And recently, I found a Black-owned brewery that is located in Inglewood, California called Crowns and Hops. I love me a Black-owned business that is also local. Crowns and Hops Brewing Co., which is founded by Benny Ashburn and T.O. Hunter, is dedicated to preserving culture, expansion of the palate, and the community building through world-class beer. Independent craft beer culture has become more than a product or a beverage. It is proven to create hubs within the community, promoting values, ownership, and philanthropy. Their mission is to create a family-friendly space or family-friendly spaces that are community-centric with underserved communities of color in mind, driving diversity, economic growth, and influencing inclusion. I came across Crowns and Hops over the Halloween weekend, and I loved what I tasted. I will call myself out and say that the beers that I chose to taste tasted more like ciders and less like beers for any of my beer connoisseurs listening. Uh, The first beer I tried was a guava strawberry beer that definitely tasted like a melted popsicle in the best way possible, and it was super refreshing. And then I also had a beer called the Blue Peach, which tasted sort of like a blueberry peach beer like sucker, if you will, which was stupid good. And Stacey Abrams was also on the can of that particular beer, so that could have also made the beer better to me. I mean, drinking righteously is always my favorite way to drink. I'm just saying, the holidays are coming up, and if you're looking to add some variety and surprise to your alcoholic beverage rotation, check out Crowns and Hops. I will link it in the show notes. 
And then for my Asian-owned business, I chose a business called Chunks. On the socials, they are at chunks.shop. Uh, I've been doing a lot of natural hairstyling lately, lately, and the easiest, I guess, most low-maintenance, high-impact way that I like to do my hair is to gather up all of my kinks and curls and secure them in a desired shape with like brightly patterned, colorful clips and claws that... Uh, echo or sort of nicely go but never match the outfit that I'm wearing that day and real talk a well-designed highly effective cute hair clip is not that easy to find one that is sturdy uh-uh very difficult but thanks to a google search it introduced me to chunks and I have been a fan ever since chunks products are designed by Tiffany Jew the company is based in Seattle. It supports responsible manufacturing and proudly manufactures its products in China because, according to their website, it's time to end the shame about where companies produce and emphasize how companies produce. We're proud to have such a, a high-quality partners in China and believe in representing our manufacturing openly because there are so many incorrect assumptions about it, end quote. Uh, the hair clips and the barrettes are super brightly colored. They come in a wide array of shapes and styles and are really, really durable. They can hold my hair in place without slipping and changing throughout the day. Uh, my hair can be kind of a lot. It's really thick, but clips has managed to hold my hair in place and also like not break apart and they don't lose their teeth, which is another bonus. Uh, they also make fun sunglasses if you're into colorful sunglasses as well. So if you're looking to add some fun and color to your hair accessories, check out Chunks. I will link to both of these businesses in show notes, but let's get to our conversation for today. Today's guest is Christine Platt. Christine Platt is a modern-day Renaissance woman, also known as the Afro-Minimalist. She holds a BA in Africana Studies, MA in African American Studies, and JD in General Law. An award-winning author of over two dozen literary works, Christine's most recent book, The Afro-Minimalist's Guide to Living with Less, is a radical re-envisioning of minimalism that focuses on authenticity, over aesthetics, a resource for anyone seeking to discover the truth behind their overconsumption as well as how to let go of what no longer serves them. The Afro Minimalist's Guide to Living with Less encourages us to be intentional, mindful customers so our lives are filled with only those things we need, use, and love. Christine Platt, the Afro-Minimalist. Welcome to the Black and Yellow Podcast. <laughs> hey, so happy to be here. Thrilled to have you. You have a new book out. It is making all kinds of waves, not just in the minimalist uh, sphere, but also in Black culture as well. So I am pumped for this conversation. Thank you so much for the great work that you've put out into the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning you have a really wonderfully varied and interesting career. Tell my audience a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Yeah, so I am a historian by trade. I have a bachelor's and master's in African and African-American studies. And then just because that wasn't enough, I went to law school <laughs> as well. So <laughs> I'm also a lawyer by trade. Um, and, you know, Currently, my work is at the intersections of anti-racism and literature. So I write um, a lot of books for people of all ages, right? Um, the breadth of my work is currently in children's literature, but all of my work centers on teaching the history of the African diaspora, right? So whether it's through fiction or through nonfiction, right? That is sort of the intersection of my work. Um, and as you know, I am also a minimalist and mm -hmm. um, one of the few black voices um, in this wellness and lifestyle space. And it's just been such an adventure being a trailblazer <laughs> when it comes <laughs> when it comes to this. Yes. Um, I it is it has been a wild ride, um, but I've been so fortunate to meet so many wonderful practitioners um, along the way, some of whose names are 
big names, some of whose names are smaller names, right? Or, you know, lesser known household names, but all of them have just really taught me so much about the practice of minimalism. Um, and it's just been a beautiful journey. So I'm enjoying the ride right now. Also, side note, you write kids' books, which I have purchased for younger cousins of mine in the past. So you are a full author all the way around, and you speak to people of all different ages. So I just do. Have to put that out there. I do. I mean, and you know, the the kids' books. I mean, th those are my babies, right? Like that is the audience that I really enjoy writing for. I like to liken young minds to being like perfectly moldable pieces of clay. And by the time I'm trying to do the same type of work with adults, it's like it's their brains have been kindled and by the fire. And there's a lot of, you know, like breaking Undoing. down that has to be done. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I learn I learned so much uh, writing literature, especially literature that teaches history and anti-racism um, for all ages. And it's yeah, that's a big part of my life's work. I love it. I love it. And uh, we're talking about minimalism and blackness today. Speaking of a lot of undoing that has to happen mm -hmm. as we become older. So I wanted to start by asking you, how did you find your way to the journey of minimalism? And why did you choose the moniker, the Afro minimalist? <laughs> so I found my way, I think like most people, right? Like you wake up one day and you're mm -hmm. finally ready to sort of tackle this overconsumption, right? You're you're ready to acknowledge that you just have too much stuff and the time has come to sort of do something about it. And for me, that was like really looking at my closet, really looking at my home goods. And at the time, I mean, this is like five, six years ago, um, there really weren't a lot of practitioners in the space that were sort of like their work was out there, let alone practitioners of color. Um, and so I went the route that that most people go, right? They find Josh and Ryan, the minimalist, right. and they try and figure it out, right? Um, I also did. <laughs> also, so Josh and Ryan, you know, a lot of Pinterest, a lot of like, you know, just the mainstream minimalist approach to decluttering. And what I realized was that it just did not work for me, right? Like mm -hmm. I was able to take bits and pieces of Josh and Ryan's advice. I was able to take bits and pieces from this Pinterest post, right? Or this blog, right? Um, Cobble it together, it, yeah. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> collectively this might work, but like individually, this is not a plan. Um, and what didn't work for me really was, you know, just this the barren aesthetic, the monochrome colors, right? Like all of these unofficial rules. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, oh, yes. right? Yep. And so it 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 took me really trying to mirror a lot of the images that I saw, the ideals of people whose opinions I valued, right? Because they're seen as leaders in this space. It took me really trying to mirror that and feeling the authenticity um, that it, the inauthenticity, I should say, like it sure. just did not work for me. Right. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to do my own little thing here. I'm about to have my own version of minimalism and you know, black folks, what we mm -hmm. do, we put Afro in front of anything we want to claim as ours. Right. Yep. And so I was yep. like, I'm the Afro minimalist. Right. So yes. that's really how I came up with that name. And <laughs> you know, Afro minimalism is, is nothing, you know, it's literally like, my approach to minimalism, which is a minimalist life influenced by the African diaspora. This is based on, you know, my my history and culture, my work as a historian, right? Like that Absolutely. is, that became the breadth of what I wanted my minimalist life to look like. And so that's how I came up with that. And, you know, it's it's bright colors, it's textures, it's mud cloth it's pieces from my travels right like it it embodies um what i value and love most right and so that is i i had to find that authenticity in the practice which is why i always tell people authenticity over aesthetics when it comes to minimalism forget there the aesthetics focus on I the authenticity what's going to work for you I also sincerely hope that because this book has gotten so much love, your face is all over the place. You've got your TED talk going. I sincerely hope that people stop you on the street and are like, you're the Afro minimalist. What's up? Like, I sincerely hope that. It does happen. It does happen. Or yeah. I get DMs where they're like, 
I swear I just saw you walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. And I'm like, why didn't you say hi? Yeah. So it is fun being, you know, you know, recognized in this space now and stopping and having conversations with folks in bookstores on the street, right? Because I'm really able to see how this work is being impactful in so many people's lives. And I think that's, you know, that's what anyone wants to do in this space, right? Like you want your work to be impactful. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Perfect. I will also link to your TED talk in the show notes. I think it's a really nice uh, jumping you. off or whether or rather a motivational place to start because you let us know very much like Oprah, you can be a, min a minimalist, you and you and you like we can all do it. And I you can do it. Have to tell you, you there was a part it. of me that was like, no, I don't think so. But after reading your book, <laughs> I think differently. So let's talk about it. You have a new book out, The Afro Minimalist's mm -hmm. Guide to Living with Less. Congratulations. Yes. Thank and you. It seems perfectly timed for the moment that we're in right now. People were forced to live yeah. with their stuff, look at their stuff, deal with their stuff. And now people are making decisions on what to do with it. And I wanted to ask you, what made you want to write this book? And were there any minimalism myths you were hoping to debunk? So this is what is so interesting, right? I remember the pandemic starting and, you know, me and my daughter, she was a high school senior at the time. And we were just so thrilled. We were like, oh my gosh, we're going to get to spend all this time together. We were making TikTok videos. We okay, were great. living our we were living our best lives. Great. I heard and high school senior and I'm like, oh, right? no. I know. And then here comes my agent and she says, you know, I think this might be a good time to to pitch your Afro minimalist book. Right. And she said, like, this is so timely. People are going to be at home. Like, let's pitch it. And the first editor we pitched it to wanted it, um, which is always very exciting. Um, but she wanted it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so the book proposal, so I wrote the book proposal, wrote the book, and the book was published all during the pandemic, all within madness. the span of a year, which oh, is, yeah, crazy. like when I That's say it aloud, it's craziness. madness. Yes. Um, but, you know, I think because we were all in that space together, I think it made me even more aware of what folks needed, right? Like really, you know, it was always big for me to think about having a holistic approach to this practice. Um, but I think it became even more apparent, right? Because everyone was home and people were posting things online. And I was just like, oh, there's so much I can do here. And, you know, one of the myths that I really wanted to debunk was all of these unofficial rules that permeate this space, right? Mm -hmm. The colors, the only colors you can use, the amount of square footage you have to have, right? Yep. The number of things you can own, right? They're all of these unofficial rules that really distract from the practice of what is really just being a mindful consumer, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, I, I think, I hope I did a really good job <laughs> of doing that, right? And not really, you know, not really wanting to call anyone out and say like, this practitioner is wrong or that practitioner is wrong, right? Because now that this space, um, you know, has become very popular and commodified, right? There's like, this a lot and anytime anything comes commodified, right? It, be, it comes, it becomes an issue, right? And so sure. I don't want I don't want it to seem that I'm saying Marie Kondo is wrong or Josh and Ryan or right. Like that, sure. these are approaches that work for them and there are certain people it works perfectly for them. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to a lot of, you know, practicing minimalists, what you find is they do take that cobbled approach, right? <laughs> like yeah. I literally con Mari my closet every three months, right? Like it's a part of wow. me doing, yeah, it's a part of me doing Project 333. You know, Courtney, Courtney Carver, Carver uh -huh. is also yes. a big name in this space, right? Yeah. But, you know, other approaches um, from Marie Kondo's philosophy, like the folding, it's just not applicable to me, right? Because I've learned that I have to hang the majority of my things. I don't Ooh. have a dresser. Got it. I don't have a single dresser, right? Because mm -hmm. what I learned going through my practices if there's something that I can fold and put away and out of sight, then out of mind. It, you know what I mean? It's a storage mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's like a mini store, a mini storage yeah. facility in my house, right? And yeah. so that's what I mean by like taking bits and pieces, right? Of all of these folks. And and I tell people, even in my book, take what works for you and leave what doesn't, right? The mm-hmm. idea is that you create a minimalist practice and lifestyle that you can work with and live with, and it can be functional for you, right? My yeah. minimalist practice now that my daughter is in college is obviously going to look very different from someone who has a family of four, right? The idea that there should be one size approach Mm -hmm. that works for everyone is just unrealistic. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of sort of looking at all of these different approaches and, and finding like what works for you, what feels authentic for you, right? Like knowing that I don't need to have a dresser and, and that, I mean, it was like, oh, a huge part of my overconsumption issue, right? Like I yep. would be disingenuous and inauthentic if I said, man, I mean, I really like how Marie Kondo folds. I'm going to use, it doesn't work for me. And sure. that's okay. You see what I mean? Like, yeah. so that's sort of my, you know, with writing this book, I, I really wanted to focus on just debunking the, the, I guess the general myth that there's only one approach to minimalism. It's just not true. And you did that really, really beautifully. And I also love that you're, you have an, an all-inclusive minimalist approach. Like, I didn't realize that you con Marie your closet every three months. I thought <laughs> she's got her own way of doing things. But no, I do like that you incorporate Courtney's work and Marie Kondo's work into mm-hmm. uh, the work that you do. Because I think that it does help for other people to figure out what works for them, especially if they're new to this space and don't want to... Yes get it wrong or get rid of too much and then are filled with regret. Yes. Yes. And that, you know, that regret piece is really big for a lot of people, right? Like it really, people are, you know, really afraid of letting go because they're afraid like, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. Right. Which is, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to, to have a more holistic approach. 100%. I also think in the post pandemic i'm i'm doing that in air quotes cuz i realize we're not totally out of it yet the uh the uh, economic impact that so many people have gone through i think also might make an extra layer of oh can i really afford to get rid of this what if i can't mm-hmm. afford to replace it sort of a thing yeah well let's dive into minimalism as a as a movement as an aesthetic mm-hmm. choice a lifestyle a design philosophy as you said earlier, it can feel very stark and rigid and barren and whitewash, quite literally and figuratively. Figuratively, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the images that often accompany minimalism don't feature people of color, nor is the aspiration of minimalism marketed to Black people. Someone might even wonder, is minimalism for Black people? I might say mm-hmm. I am one of those people. <laughs> However... Uh, my question to you is, how has your approach created space for the culture? Yeah, yeah. I love that you asked that. So I first want to say minimalism is for everyone, right? I understand that that word evokes a lot of feelings and even visceral reactions from a lot of people because it is rooted in that stark barren scarcity, like when you say that word and that's immediately the image that is evoked, right? Mm -hmm. And so I often tell people if that is a word that is triggering for them in some particular way to think about like say, hey, I don't have to be a minimalist. Can I live with less? Can I be a more mindful consumer, right? Like there are ways that you can frame the language to sort of get, get, get it, push that piece aside of thinking about it from a terms of like scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's another reason why I really wanted to have a more holistic approach, right? And I did a four-step approach, which you know is uh, featured in the book, right? That I think anyone can follow. And, you know, Mm -hmm. step one is acknowledging that you have more than you need. Step two is forgiving yourself. That's a piece that is rarely talked about when we come to decluttering, right? You have all these people, they're like, I pulled everything out of my closet. And then the next thing I knew, I was just crying. No one told me I was going to cry, right? Right. Like I want to get people to understand that you're going to feel some emotions, right? When it comes to acknowledging and when it comes to preparing to let go and maybe even while you're letting go. Mm -hmm. Um, Step three is that decluttering letting go process 
Um, and as you know, I follow a need, use, love approach. Yep. And those are not looked at individually, right? Like yep. <laughs> you have to need it. You have mm-hmm. to need it, you have to use it, and you have to love it. And then step four, which I think is also something we don't really hear talked about in mainstream minimalism, is what to do with the stuff, right? So right. paying it forward with your stuff, right? And so I think, you know, by showing this holistic approach, adding cultural elements in the book, like I have uh, Black pages that are specifically for Black folks and other marginalized communities, right, (laughs) that are like, they're literally labeled for the culture, right? Because I think it's so important to understand the historical and generational implications and trauma and information and decisions that we're carrying that may also impact our consumption habits, right? And so I think to overlook that or disregard that is, I think it's a huge disservice, right? And I have found people from all walks of life saying, oh my God, thank you for including that. I never thought Mm -hmm. about my family history. I never thought about, you know, how this impacts me, you know, being an immigrant, being a first gen, right? Like all of these things play a role in in our consumption. And so, you know, it was really important for me to make sure that I showed that this was a lifestyle that is attainable to anyone and everyone who wants to pursue it. Definitely. I, uh, I'm engaged to a white man. We've been together for 15 years and he's very much a minimalist. I'm very much a maximalist. And our first <laughs> years living together, he just couldn't understand why I had so much stuff. Mm. And I would say things akin to, and I don't think this was the right thing to say. I would say things akin to, I bought this for the ancestors, for my people before who mm-hmm. couldn't have these things or weren't allowed yeah. to go into those stores. And it was, I think it took a good year for him to really get it because mm-hmm. I do think that black people have a different relationship with our material goods than white people. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think that's another reason why I would hear sometimes, you know, like, oh, my goodness, I I just I mean, this idea that I should just let go of things. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that is so white. That is so Eurocentric. Who gets an opportunity to go into their house and like start all over. Right. Just throw everything away and start Mm -hmm. over. Or, you know, I would hear from people who said like, man, you know, I really was trying to approach this minimalist lifestyle. And then I, you know, I saw this bed, it looked amazing, it would be so great in my space. And the bed frame was $10,000. Minimalism isn't for me, right? And so like, you know, sort of like getting around and understanding, um, you know, I mean, all of this to me is sort of like rooted in the psychology of ownership, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's so important for us to understand individually and collectively how that has framed and shaped our ideas um, and and beliefs around ownership and around our belongings, right? This idea that our things mean more to us than they actually do right it's like perceived value and actual value (laughs) for sure and that's a perfect segue to my next question which is all about ownership ownership Mm -hmm. specifically property ownership uh whether that's owning slaves owning real estate owning designer goods ownership is a foundational fabric in the weave of this country many Mm -hmm. of us have been taught that owning things is great to signify status owning things can help build wealth etc etc And one thing that you do in the book that I, again, haven't seen in other minimalist guides is talk about the psychology of ownership and the ripple effects of our spending. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the psychology of ownership is for any of my listeners who have never heard that phrase before and why it was important to include in the book? I'm going to try not to nerd out here too much because this this is such, this is like my jam because You know, I think understanding the psychology of ownership is key to understanding our consumption, okay? Mm -hmm. So most of us are familiar with the legality of ownership, which is, this is legally mine, right? Mm -hmm. This is your home. This is your car. This is, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. we're familiar with the legality of ownership. The psychology of ownership is the belief 
that something is yours or an extension of you, right? This is why you're motivated to purchase certain things. This is why you form attachments and it's hard to let go of certain things. I like to use the example when I'm trying to teach people about the psychology of ownership. I like to use my favorite audience, which are children. (laughs) They're so honest. They are so honest, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you've ever been with a child or you've been in a store with someone who has a child, you have more than likely encountered the scenario, which is the parent, caregiver, loved one has given them something to hold in the store to hold their attention, to stop them from touching all the other things, right? Uh doesn't matter if they're in the store for five minutes or an hour. By the time they get to the register and the parent says, put that thing back, the kid says, no, this is mine. This is mine. And they're screaming and they're crying and they're wailing. And everyone is looking like, why is this kid losing their mind over a roll of toilet tissue <laughs> or whatever it is, right? Like it's usually, it's usually like nothing and we can't understand why they are so attached to this thing, right? Right. And that is rooted in the psychology of ownership, which is why I tell people all the time, you cannot be going around touching stuff, okay? <laughs> because the power of touch, which is what... um you know, I, I learned so much of this from marketing, by the way. I mean, I looked at a few mm. psychology journals and articles, but most of this information came from marketing presentations and advertising. It's so fascinating, right? Yeah. They understand the yeah. power of touch, which is why they're like, test drive the thing, try mm-hmm. on the thing, right? Because what happens is when we touch something immediately, this feeling of partial ownership forms right? Mm -hmm. Have partial ownership. This is where you're like, do I need this? Then all of a sudden someone walks by and they're like, oh, that's cute. Where'd you find that? Oh, are you going to get that? Right? Or you you may even see someone, they may not even say anything. And all of a sudden now you want to exert full ownership, right? That partial ownership is like, oh, this thing is almost mine. Mm -hmm. And the difference between adults and children is that we have the power to exert that full ownership. And normally we get the thing, right? This is why there's all these extra things in your cart. This is why y'all got to stop blaming Target, Mm -hmm. right? Like everyone's like, (laughs) (laughs) there's something in the air in Target, right? Like it's making me pick up all these things. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, you're touching, you're touching things. (laughs) Yeah, I throw Sephora in there as well. Yes. (laughs) Right. And so, again, you know, like I really think understanding the psychology of ownership is so key to understanding our consumption um, habits and behaviors, understanding our motivations to purchase things, understanding our attachments, you know, on, on why it's difficult to let certain things go. And this inner work to me is so essential, right? And I feel it should come before one even starts the decluttering process, right? Mm-hmm. It's often this this missing link for people who want to live with less, but just can't seem to understand why the process is so difficult, right? Yes. Once you understand the psychology of ownership, that's when you make that connection. I am going to vintage shop very differently from this interview on. I have to tell you. I I mean, I have learned to be just very intentional because once I understood that, you know, I think oftentimes we feel like it's me being weak or it's me being why why can't I be stronger when I'm right. standing in anthropology, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's literally the psychology, right? It's literally motivations. Like we are biologically wired to behave certain ways, right? And so like Mm -hmm. we understand a lot of our social motivations, right? Our need to have friendships, our need to have family, right? Because rarely do humans survive well on their own, right? We understand our biological motivations, right? We're motivated to, you know, thirst motivates us (laughs) to have water, right? Like hunger motivates us to eat, right? And so I think like understanding that psychology of ownership piece and saying like, this is something that is innately wired in me. But now that I know what it is, 
now we're now we've leveled the playing field a little bit more, right? Like mm-hmm. now I know why I purchased why I have 10 blankets, right? I am obviously seeking comfort, right? Yeah. Home, comfort and security is a motivation, right? Understanding why you can't let go of the high school cheerleading uniform or the high school <laughs> basketball uniform, right? Like yeah. self-identity. Self-identity is a big part of our motivations, right? And so like you get to understand more about why you have consumed the way you do, why you hold on to things the way you do. And I think that psychology piece really is just a light bulb going off for a lot of people, which is why I start the book with that. I start the book with understanding why you have more than you need and understanding why it's so hard to let go before we ever pick up the first donation bag. Because if you don't get to the root causes of your overconsumption, what ends up happening, you can declutter. I mean, there's a million decluttering regimens, organization, sure. you know, but it's <laughs> approaches, all come right? Back. It's all going to come back if you don't get to the root cause, root causes of understanding your particular, you know, motivations and attachment when, when it comes to consumption. For sure. Um, I felt very seen by you. I believe this was in the chapter of why we have more than we need, where you were talking about loving a deal and uh, <laughs> shopping with your mom for leisure. And I and I, I felt very seen because I'm a vintage shopper. So I understand that thrill of the hunt, whether it's looking yeah. for a deal or whether it's looking for that, you know, kooky, bright, texture, notorious B.I.G. style sweater right. because you just have to have it for whenever. I totally understand that thrill of the hunt and um, giving yourself a little bit of time to really stop and think. I'm a meditator, so like a couple of deep breaths and really pondering of the the root cause of why I feel like I need this sweater mm-hmm. or I need this great deal or whatever it is that makes your heart go flutter and makes you um, shop. Because I also think during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands to, if we weren't decluttering, look at other things that, me, that yeah, we might man. want to incorporate into our life. Yes. The yeah. ads were coming, right? And I think, you know, one of the reasons that I did um, that that piece on like really getting people to try and understand <laughs> their, their <laughs> and I'm laughing because we are so prone to buy certain things during certain heightened times mm-hmm. of instability, right? And I'm laughing because I am looking at, you know, I did this post last year. Um, it was uh, it was our New Year's Eve post, and I just invited people to share their the most ridiculous thing they bought during the pandemic, right? Because I wanted people to know. So I, you know, I had done this post, New Year's Eve post, where I invited folks to sort of share the most ridiculous thing they purchased during the pandemic. And it was, you know, more so, you know, as a confessional, right? And also a way for people to see, like, you're not alone. And Mm. I tell you, like, that was the funniest post ever. I had purchased an, an Apple Watch Charger holder. A holder. Okay. Okay. Right. So you Uh put the Apple watch charger in this, in this little plastic, it wasn't plastic, it was rubber piece that was in the shape of a, uh, the original Mac computer. And so when you put your, when you put your, where your watch there to charge, it looked like a little Mac. It was so cute. It's a little novelty. It was so cute. Yeah. It was a little novelty, but it was so ridiculous, right? So I shared the picture <laughs> of that. And oh my goodness, this thread, right? Like it went on and on and on because what was happening was so many people were seeking comfort, enjoyment, excitement, all these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what we do is we buy things, we're motivated again to buy things to fulfill these certain comforts, right? And sure. so getting people to understand that in tight in times of heightened you know sensitivity emotional you know like emotional spending all of these things you have to understand what your triggers are right mm-hmm. and usually it's just that pause that makes you say i don't really need this thing right yeah. so the pause for me when we talk about 
you know, having things, being bargain hunters, right? Mm-hmm. The pause for me, I'll see a deal and I have to I have this little mantra and I say, Christine, it's not a deal if you don't need it. Like that's my, that's my mantra, right? Another mantra that came about during the pandemic was I had to ask myself, I have something in the cart. I'll say, okay, Christine, what is the why behind the buy? What's the Mm. why behind this buy, right? So there are so many different mantras and things that you can say to just pause because in that pause, like that, that 60 seconds, those 30 seconds, mm-hmm. you're really able to say like, I don't need this thing. Got it. Or why am I really getting this thing? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the pandemic, the pandemic triggered a lot of behaviors and spending um, and a lot of people, a lot of people started collections of things. A lot of people were triggered by you know, food scarcity from their childhood. So they stocked Mm -hmm. up their pantries, right? So like oftentimes a lot of those triggers are rooted in fear. So and that's why it's so important to understand the root causes of your consumption, right? Did you grow up with food scarcity? Did you grow up having significant lack, right? Sometimes, you know, for some people, it'll be their pantries, right? And I try and get them to dig deep, right? Like, where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? You know, even though the deal was 10 for 10, there's no way you and your partner are going to finish these 10 boxes of cereal before they expire, right? So where is this coming from, right? Mm -hmm. And we'll drill down and we'll drill down. And what we find out is, you know, I remember growing up, and I would open my pantry and nothing would be there. And so it gives me comfort and security to just open my pantry and see it fully stocked. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, like it is 100%. the psychology piece is it's the missing link. And it's so powerful for a lot of people. Completely. And I told you this off off air, but I will say it here in the spirit of that Instagram post, my most ridiculous pandemic purchase was a pair of leather pants from a brand. Uh, <laughs> and the leather pants were named after me, not specifically after me, but they were the Alana skinny leather jean. And I was oh, I love it. <laughs> I was very clear in the moment. <laughs> and I'm buying these because they have my name. My name was not popular growing up. Now it's having a moment. But uh-huh. during the time of like being at home and feeling gross and unfashionable, I wanted to feel pretty and fashionable. Yeah. And I wanted to feel like I had some control over my image because I didn't have control of what was happening in the world. So to any listener who wants to take a step, take a pause, maybe think about their most ridiculous pandemic purchase. This is a great little exercise that you do delve into much more in the book. But uh, if you want a little taste of it, It's a great time to pause, think about that, and really dig down deep and figure out what the root of your most ridiculous pandemic purchase was. Just a a fun little exercise. Just a fun little exercise. Yeah, not bad. It's all all in the the name of (laughs) self-discovery. Historically, Black people have been forced to live with less. We've been forced to settle for second best, if anything at all, and have not had the safety net of generational wealth to make our lives easier. And many of us have also heard the all too common narratives of how hard our previous generations had to work so we could live our dreams and create the lives that we desire for ourselves. And so for many of us, a part of buying nice things or or wanting to acquire the things that we never had came from that place. How can we break the conspicuous consumption cycle and embrace the minimalist mindset that you talk about in your book? You know, I feel like conspicuous consumption, which most Black folks know best and even other communities know best, is like keeping up with the Joneses, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, (laughs) the Jetsons, yeah. The Jetsons, you know, I've heard keeping up with the Combs, you know, keeping up with... (laughs) (laughs) Keeping up with Pop Daddy, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Combses, right? (laughs) Whoever you want to put there. Um, You know, it's this idea of, you know, trying to impress others with what you have, right? And it is a dangerous, slippery slope that so many of us find ourselves on. Um, And for me, it happened when I graduated from law school and started working in big law and really felt like 
I had to have a certain type of suit. I had to have a certain type of heel. I had to carry a certain handbag, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking of conspicuous consumption beyond just your friends and community, sometimes it even can trickle into your career um, or your career aspirations. You know, a lot of times we hear that you have to look the part, right? There's all these little Mm -hmm. triggering words and phrases that, you know, contribute to this type of consumption. Social media can contribute to it as well, right? Um, And so for Black folks, you know, culture is actually one of the leading causes of our spending. We are very much influenced by culture and cultural figures and icons, right? And I think, you know, understanding how this has come about generationally and historically is also very important, right? Which is why I have those pages in the book that really center and focus on the Black experience and consumption, right? And understanding the years of generational wealth that were lost, right? Understanding how those stories that were passed down, right? You know, I think up until, I mean, I know when I was growing up, there were still Black women in my community that kept their money in the bra or in the freezer or under the bed, right? And like Mm -hmm. you would, you would grow up and be like, why won't they just put their money in the bank, right? Right. That's because they heard stories mm-hmm. from their grandmother or their fa- a family member or a friend who was like, man, I remember when so-and-so, they put their life savings in that bank, right? And when they went to withdraw that money 20 years later, do you know what that white bank told them? Right. They didn't have any record of their money, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to understand generationally and historically how some of these habits and behaviors and advice and adages how and why they've been passed down, right? To me, that is so important. I think we can be very judgmental, right? When we're standing on the other side (laughs) of the the privilege of, Mm -hmm. you know, what our ancestors fought and fought and died for, right? And so I I really encourage people, um, and not just Black folks, like all folks, like look at your family history and lineage, right? Most of us, if our parents were not born during the Great Depression, right? They were certainly born shortly thereafter, which means they received stories and and things that were passed down to them based on what their parents experienced during one of the worst financial crises of this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you find is, you know, you talk to your parents or you talk to your grandparents And you get these stories, you get, you know, yeah, this is why I don't throw away anything, right? Mm -hmm. Or this is why I don't have anything, right? This is why having things isn't important to me because I remember hearing my grandma tell me when they lost it all, right? Or you have people that really try and make up for the past, right? Mm -hmm. Make up for, and this is, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, right? Where you're like, my ancestors died for me to have this, right? Or mm-hmm. I'm getting this because my ancestors couldn't, right? Yeah. Um, and so like understanding, I think, the history and and legacies and generationally how all of these things play a role in not just our conspicuous consumption, but literally in our consumption in general, right? Yeah. This Definitely. is, it is key, right? And so I think, mm-hmm. especially for Black folks, really thinking about you know, the idea of just how many generations we were removed from slavery, just how many generations were removed from sharecropping, just how many generations were removed from being first gen anything or everything, right? Yeah. As it is in my case, yeah. right? And and understanding the weight and responsibility that comes with that, the lack of guidance that you don't have, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. if you're the first six figure income earner in your family, you are more than likely prone to do what you believe is the American dream, which is to consume. Yeah. I'm going to get the house. I'm going to get the car. I'm going to keep up with the Joneses. Now I have an opportunity and the means to do so, right? Like you don't mm-hmm. have generational guidance, right? True. To say yeah. when you get your first job, here is what you do with this, right? When you mm-hmm. do this, invest here, right? When you, you don't have that. 
right? right. And so right. again, I want people to think about the totality of the circumstances surrounding their consumption and extend themselves some grace and extend their caregivers and loved ones some grace as well, right? Understanding mm -hmm. that most people are either operating from a deficit or usually just trying to do and teach what they think is best, right? And so that is why that forgiveness piece, again, is just so, so important to me as well. Yeah, because family also has expectations when you've made X amount of money, as you said, like the first six-figure income earner, the first college graduate. Yes, there are outside societal concerns and the way that the world tells you your life should look, but then also within Black families, there might be spoken or unspoken expectations about, well, you've been this successful. You make this much money. You should have these things. Mm -hmm. You should be consuming these items. Um, as a side note, a friend of mine in, in reading this specifically about generational wealth, I've got a friend that does not believe in putting away money for mm -hmm. uh, future generations. And so I recommended this book to him because even though he could tell me why he doesn't, he couldn't really tell me why. And yeah. I don't think it's uncommon for a lot of African-American people to not put money away for future generations. Because and It's one of our... Yeah, it's one of our adages, right? It's one yeah. of the statements that's been passed down generationally, which is live for today because tomorrow isn't promised, right? Definitely. And that came from a time and era where that was definitely true, right? Like mm -hmm. in the Jim Crow era, you truly did not know. Tomorrow was not promised, right? And so again, we have to look at some of these beliefs and adages and advice that have been handed down to us and really ask ourselves, are they still applicable to us today? I think that's a perfect segue into my final question, because you're already kind of giving it, which is a call <laughs> to action. What advice or actionable steps would you give to my listeners who are interested in minimalism, but don't know where to start? Yeah, so... I mean, obviously, I'm going to say start with my book. No, yes. but like, <laughs> I'll link you know, in the show notes. <laughs> no, I really want people to to that first part of acknowledgement is so important, right? So yeah. that taking that first step is acknowledging I am over consuming. I am not using my resources wisely, right? And also, again, language is so important here, right? These are not mistakes. These are choices and decisions that you've made, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a failure. This is a lesson that you've learned, right? Like sure. be very mindful of that language and what you say to yourself. Um, but getting people to acknowledge um, their overconsumption and then also, you know, getting people to be willing to take that first step, right? And I tell folks all the time, if it's difficult for you, because once you really hit that acknowledgement piece, like there's one thing to be like, ha, 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 I shop all the time. Ooh, I should stop shopping. It's another thing to open your closet and do inventory and realize like I did that I had over 50 pairs of jeans, even though I only wore the same two, right? Ooh. Like that's a different form of acknowledgement, yeah. right? And being ready and willing once you make that acknowledgement to really take the first step to do something different, right? Mm -hmm. And if it is completely overwhelming, right? Like even making the commitment to start with one thing a day. That's why I have the one thing one day when you're challenged. It's just a self-accountability, simple hashtag on Instagram, but you tag yourself, right? And you say, I let go of this, right? And the, I, the thing is, if you let go of one thing a day, it gets 365 easier. things, right? But what yeah. usually happens is that you start with that one thing and then you're like, you know what? I can let go of something else today. I can let go of something else, right? And I have people sure. that are like, so all of a sudden I had a bag of stuff, of donations, right? <laughs> I'm like, great, right? So being willing to make that commitment to say, I'm going to do something different, right? I'm mm -hmm. going to really get to the root causes of my overconsumption. I'm going to do this inner work and figure out why I spend this way. Why in times of emotional vulnerability, I go to the mall instead of going for a walk or instead of going to a yoga class, right? Like doing that inner work mm -hmm. to really drill down deep and figure out why your behaviors and patterns are what they are, right? I mean, I feel like those are the first two crucial steps that anyone can take. It doesn't cost any money. You technically do not have to buy my book, although I would appreciate it if you do. But <laughs> I share all of this on Instagram too, right? Because I also understand, you know, there, I want to make this accessible 
to as many people as possible, right? And so, you know, a lot of what we talked about today, I share on Instagram. You know, I have some of the funniest and most honest um, threads. It's an amazing community um, of, of practicing minimalists, people who are aspiring minimalists, people who are in the process. And I think, you know, becoming a part of a community is really helpful. You see that you're not alone. You see um, other folks that have the same amount of stuff as you or once had the same amount of stuff or more stuff. And, you know, you can be really inspired. We share a lot of tips and advice because, again, this is applicable to so many people, right? We live in a capitalist society. We have been encouraged uh, and taught to consume. Uh, You know, consumption has been made easier than ever, right? Your card information is saved, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to wait five days for something to be delivered anymore. You can get it in an hour, right? Like, and this is why it's just so important to be a part of a community and you see where other people are also just being equally vulnerable and sharing their challenges and success stories, right? And so those would be the recommendations that I have for anyone who who is interested in getting started. Thank you so much for that. Christine Platt, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come (laughs) here and to talk to myself and to talk to my listeners to inspire some budding minimalists. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show, guys. I'll be back next week. Bye. That's our show, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Alana Webster. On the gram, I am at Renegade of Fun. Follow the show on Instagram as well, at Black and Yellow Podcast. You can also send me an email and tell me your deepest, darkest secrets, or just give me your feedback on the show, podcastblackandyellow at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It really helps this show grow, and I want to continue to blossom beautifully into 2022. Thank you so much for Christine Platt for stopping by. Great book is out. It's linked in show notes. Go grab a copy, and I will be back in your ears next week. Take it easy.